0: This message by Zach Varnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning, welcome. Um, If you need a Bible, we'd love to get you a Bible this morning so you can follow along. You can raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. We're going to continue our sermon, our series on the Sermon on the Mount Uh, This morning, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 38. Verse 38, this is God's word. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. is perfect. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Gladys Aylward was an extraordinary woman. In 1930, she was 28 years old. She was an English housemaid. She had failed out of a missionary school, missionary training school. But she was so determined to reach the lost in China that she saved all that she could for months and then spent everything she had on a one-way ticket to get there, a one-way train ticket to get there. But from the very beginning, Gladys was met with difficulty. A war was going on between Russia and China. And so at one point on the train, she found herself alone. No one else was going as far as she was down this line. Actually, at one point, she was forced off the train because the train was going to be used to take soldiers to the front lines of the battle and bring the wounded back. So she was forced off the train with her suitcase in the winter in Siberia by herself and had to walk 30 miles Hours to the next train station. That alone nearly killed her. And that's just one small example of all the kinds of danger and persecution and mistreatment and theft and exposure and other near-death experiences that she endured. And that was all just to get to China. When she finally arrived at the village she was going to, the locals immediately resented her threw rocks and sticks at her and called her the white devil. It was a wonderful welcome for her. But Gladys Allward, through it all, she remained. She remained there. And eventually had the privilege of leading hundreds of Chinese to Christ. There's so many amazing stories about her. But one story that I think really demonstrates who she was in 1940, China was at war again And in order to get them to safety, Gladys led 150 children, children who had been abandoned or children whose parents had died during the war. She led them on foot 200 miles from one location to another, 200 miles through war-torn country, mountain trails with steep drop-offs, in and out of train cars, over a river, finally to an orphanage that would take them all in. And most of these kids were between four and nine years old. It took them almost a month. Their shoes gave out. They went days without food, although Gladys did everything she could to feed these kids. They were constantly under threat of death from the enemy. But when they finally arrived at the orphanage, every single kid was accounted for. And Gladys fell into a coma that lasted two weeks. Her body was just wrecked. Fever, pneumonia, typhoid, malnutrition. She actually never fully recovered from that. Ten years earlier, when she was purchasing that one-way ticket to get to China, the the man selling the ticket at the station just looked at her like she was out of her mind and asked, why are you doing this? It was a question she was asked throughout her life and her ministry. Her answer, I want to serve the Lord in China. (laughs) I just want to serve the Lord. Gladys Alward Aylward had no regard for herself. She was extraordinary. In our text this morning, Jesus is saying that's just what Christians are. Whether you believe that or not, based on that story, Jesus is saying, that's just what Christians are. Extraordinary. It's an incredible thing to be called a Christian. We've come to what commentators say is is the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount. Nowhere else is this sermon more challenging. Nowhere else is the distinction between the Christian and the culture more obvious. Nowhere else is the need for the power of the Spirit to live like this more palpable. See, Jesus, again, like we've said, Jesus is not in this sermon giving us this set of rules for us just to go out and do. Jesus is giving a vision for what it looks like to belong to him. Gladys Allward wasn't ultimately extraordinary because she went to China. It's wonderful that she did. But she was extraordinary because by the grace of God, she died to herself. And she genuinely loved others. And in doing so, she received great joy. Christ is inviting us to the same things this morning. Main point, I think, of our text today, the calling is to enjoy the freedom of self-denying love. It's what we've been called to. And it's the pathway to life. Christ is inviting us to embrace it afresh. So two points today. Because what Jesus has been doing is we've been looking at this section of the Sermon on the Mount. he's, He's looking at different ways the religious leaders misapplied God's law. Different illustrations of that. There's two more illustrations, so we have two points today. Number one, you are free to not retaliate, verses 38 to 42. Look back at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now here, Jesus is not just quoting the Pharisees. At this point, he's quoting the Old Testament law, like in Exodus 21, verses 23 and 24, or in Deuteronomy 19. This is a law given by God, so it was good. But it was given with a specific purpose. There's a specific context, just like all of God's word, just like the Sermon on the Mount. We've got to take it in the context or else we get in trouble. In the Old Testament, there were judges appointed to decide over the affairs of God's people, over judicial matters. And one of the standards that God gave was this principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for life, a limb for limb. At first glance, that might appear to be harsh and exacting, but that was not the point The point of this principle was to limit just how far retribution could go. You see, God in his grace, he was given a check upon sin. He was stopping. He was restraining sin. You may not go beyond this. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and no more than that. The emphasis was not on your right to get what you deserve when you're wrong. The emphasis was your responsibility to go no further than what's appropriate, that the punishment should fit the crime. Now, we all know our tendency when we are wrong. Sadly, this is all too familiar to us. Retaliation is deep within us, each of us. We see it in our kids, don't we? Nellie Olson, well, yep, it's a character uh, in the Little House series by Laura Ingalls. We're reading uh, this series with our kids. Jake told me that if you're a Tennessee fan, she's kind of like a Gary Danielson character. (laughs) But she's arrogant, entitled. She's a hateful little girl. She's from a wealthy family, and she knows it. And she, she, she loves to make fun of poor Mary and Laura. Well, one day Mary and Laura are at the general store. Their dad had sent them, and they only have enough money to buy what Paul had sent them to buy. While they're there, Nellie Olson shows up, and her parents own the store, and she just grabs handfuls of candy, and in front of Mary and Laura, who she knows can't afford this candy, she just starts eating it and taunting them and laughing at them and making fun. When I read this, one of my girls stopped me and looked at me and said, Daddy, that's so unkind. We don't want to be like that. To which I said, yeah, that's... Good job. That's exactly right. We don't want to be selfish. We want to love others. We want to treat other people well. That's when my other daughter pop, piped up. And she said, Yeah, I'd kill her. <laughs> to which we then revisited the Ten Commandments series <laughs> on murder. I'm. I thought actually about it. I don't think I taught her that. <laughs> and, and no, I do not think she was thinking that's wrong of Nellie Olson and that's unrighteous. And, and she loves Laura. And I, I love justice. I love righteousness. And I want the Lord to vindicate Laura. I don't think that's what she was thinking. I think she was imagining herself in Laura's shoes and she wanted payback. And you know what happens in the story? Laura gets her payback. See, our natural inclination for self-defense, self-vindication, it's in all of us. It goes deep. The religious leaders, what they were doing with this law, this law that was given to promote law and order, it was a gift of restraining evil. It was a gift of keeping society civil. Instead, they were using it to justify their own natural selfish response It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'll get what I'm given. I'll give what I'm given. They insisted upon their rights. So Jesus looks at his disciples and says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Christians are extraordinary. The law, that, that governing principle, it's good for out there. It's good for this world, life outside of the kingdom. It's a restraint against evil. It's a mercy from God. But with us, those who live in the kingdom, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, we don't seek our own justification we don't go out for our own payback and retribution. We don't retaliate. We don't live as those who demand our rights. Why? Because we've been freed from that. We've been freed from self to serve and to hope in and to trust the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, "For this, for to this you have been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's our calling. Paul says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Then he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a calling. But this is our calling. Now, I think it'd be good to address what it doesn't mean. These verses do not mean don't care about law and order. This doesn't mean courts and and, and governments and civil authorities should not resist evil. Like we shouldn't have a police or a military. In fact, this text isn't even about civil government. We go other places for that. This text is about us. This text is about our hearts, our personal relationships, our interpersonal uh, relations with others. It's not about not defending what is good and right and godly. We should do that. But this is about not defending ourselves. Some have taken this to say that Christians should be pacifists. But that's not true either. When Jesus was struck in John 18 on the way to his death, he didn't offer the other cheek in that moment. He protested. But there was a difference. He wasn't just defending himself, getting retribution for himself. He was defending the law of God. What Jesus is after in this text is our natural bent for self-vindication. Me, my rights, myself, my dignity. That's the point of these other illustrations. I'll explain those briefly. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In this day, it was lawful to sue someone for their inner garment, but not their outer. So if you experienced a lawsuit like this, you had the right to keep your outer garment. Jesus says, let them have that one too. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Roman government in this day, they had a law that gave them the right to demand and compel any of their subjects like the Jews compel them to travel up to one mile to carrying something, delivering something for their own purposes. So, so a Hebrew man could be in the middle of farming in his fields and soldiers could come and interrupt his day. He might have his whole day planned and soldiers come, interrupt and say, carry this a mile. And he had to do it. It was the law. It would have been very inconvenient. But it was only up to a mile. So after a mile, you had the right To drop that package and head back home. Jesus said, oh, my disciples, after you do what you're required, go another mile. This this is radical. This is radical. This is extraordinary. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It's the same thing here, too. You have the right to keep your stuff. Jesus is saying, give to the needy. All of these things have, they have everything to do with freedom in Christ. You have been freed. You have been freed from personal vindication. You have been freed from hanging on to what belongs to you. You have been freed from that in Christ. Again, don't misunderstand, he's not saying you absolutely have to give to anyone who ever asks you. You might not have anything left after that, especially if you hang around with the college students, you know. (laughs) It's not a code of conduct. He's explaining a principle. We don't want to be undiscerning in who we give to. There are definitely professional beggars and borrowers out there. He's not talking about them. He's talking about those who are in real need. And the principle is your heart. Are you free to be generous? You have these rights. You could sue the one who slaps you. You could do that. You could keep your outer tunic. You could be done after a mile. You could keep your stuff. But Jesus says, don't. Why? Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You don't belong to this world. Your dignity and your worth and your value doesn't reside in f- maintaining and fighting for your rights or your own vindication. Your worth is found in belonging to Christ. Christians are extraordinary. The Hebrews, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, do you remember this? They, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. You remember how they did it? They did it because they were able to do this because they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So how's your heart in this area? Are you aware of how often you just, you seek we, how are you aware how often we seek our own vindication, our own justification in the eyes of others? Take time to consider it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in commenting on this text, he says, taking the time to consider it, So just how deep this goes in our hearts, it's going to be an amazing and terrible discovery. Are you aware of how prone you are to this? How concerned you are about it? How do you respond when you're misunderstood? When people make critical assumptions about you and your motives? When you're not treated fairly? When your liberties are at stake? This heart attitude, this response that is natural man in us. That's what the Lord wants to free us from. And look, it's not just saying, let the guy slap you. It's not just saying, give your cloak or walk the extra mile to just do those things as if they're behaviors. That would actually be easier than what the Lord's calling us to here. It's less about getting hit. It's more about having this attitude of heart that is free from self-concern, free from self vindication. I think there's actually application for us here with this election coming up this week that Stephen prayed for. You know it's an important election for a number of reasons but one implication of this text is the Christian's heart towards authority. Jesus said when the government demands you go one mile you go you voluntarily go two. We should be cheerful citizens of the state it doesn't mean don't participate or seek for change or pay attention or have concern about law and policy we have ways of relating to the state in other places in scripture romans 13 or first peter 2 but that's not this text this text is getting after our hearts our response so as you vote or as you participate do so remembering your your ultimate justification. Your ultimate vindication does not belong to the kingdom of this world. It belongs to the kingdom of God. Like Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What a great calling! It's the path to life. So may the Lord rid us of our spirit of retaliation, the desire to defend ourselves or revenge ourselves or demand our own rights for our own sake. Because when we're freed from that, when we're freed from self, we can go beyond that. Which leads to our next point. Number two, you're free to love and to love more. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. Verse 46: For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In the Old Testament, God had made clear his command to love your neighbor, but that second half of the verse, hate your enemies. That was inserted by the Pharisees. That's not found in Scripture. They had taken passages in Scripture like Psalm 139 that give this category of hating the enemies of God. They decided to take that into their personal lives and apply it. They created this paradigm. Fellow Jews, those are my neighbor. God's people, those are my neighbor, and I'm called to love them. Anyone else, non-Jews, people that are not a part of the people of God, they are your enemies. You can hate them they totally missed that any passage in Scripture that talks about God's hatred of his enemies is all about the righteousness of God, all about the glory of God and the wicked rebellion of these people. The Pharisees used it instead to justify their own self-righteousness and pride. It's why Jesus defined who is our neighbor in Luke 10, not just those who are like you, but anyone you can do good to. They had totally missed it. Charles Spurgeon says that those those words, hate your enemy, they were a parasitical growth on God's law. That's what the Pharisees had done. So Jesus says to his disciples, to those who are in the kingdom, but I say to you, love your enemies, verse 44, and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why are we called to love our enemies? Because that's what God does. And we're given the incredible privilege to imitate our heavenly father. We're not simply to not retaliate. We're to move towards those, even those who are enemies in love. That's why this is the height of the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most glorious things found in Christ's teaching, to love your enemies. But how can you possibly do that? How can you possibly love someone who's hostile to you, who hates you? You have to be dead to yourself. Louis Zamperini was a man who endured unimaginable pain and torture at the hands of the Japanese prison guards when he, for two years, was in a prisoner of war camp. He was a U.S. bombardier and had been captured. And, and for the, all those years, he was in that prisoner of war camp. He, was, he received so much violent abuse when he was finally released, though, at the end of the war and, and made it back to America, his hatred for his captors took a root of bitterness in his heart, and it grew deep. And he became an alcoholic, and his life spun and was spinning out of control. But then Louis heard the gospel. He heard about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to rescue vile sinners like himself. And when he heard the gospel, he, by the grace of God, believed the gospel. And the Lord gave him faith and regenerated his heart such that Louis went back to Japan and he found his captors and he faced them and he forgave them, and he loved them, and he shared with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Through the eyes of faith, when he was transformed, what happened? He, he began to see himself truly, that he is a sinner in need of the grace of God, and he began to see others truly sinners in need of the grace of God, he began to see others like God sees them. And that's what enabled him to love. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. We can love others like God because Christ changes how we think about others, how we see ourselves and see others. And maybe you think, maybe you're thinking these it's only just these incredibly famous Christians who, who do things like this because those are the only examples I've used. But that's not true. It's not true. It's you. I know this church. I know stories of some of you who have family members who are hostile to your faith. They've said it to you. They've communicated to you. their disdain for how you're doing life, how you're raising your kids, how you're making decisions. And yet you don't hate them. But love them and continue to maintain relationship with them, showing hospitality, giving them gifts, and continue to tell them about who the Lord is. I know some of you students who have been ridiculed in some of your classes for what you believe, and yet you don't retaliate. You just seek to be a good student. You love your professors. You love your fellow students. I know some of you have been criticized. You've been thought the worst of. You've been maligned. Your motives have been judged and mistaken. And yet you're just not living to exonerate yourself. That's not your single passion in life. You entrust yourself to him who judges justly. And you've maintained relationships with others in love. This is life in the kingdom. This is what the Lord is doing in us this is a dark world sin is rampant people hate the lord he is ignored and despised and yet what does the lord do he makes his sun rise every day he gives rain not just to the righteous but to the unrighteous also when it rains on my yard it also rains on bills It lets you interpret that how you want. (laughs) The Lord has every right to do away with those who retaliate against him and don't obey and reject reject his holy name. Instead, he blesses them with good things. He sends the rain. He gives his son. Who, Who is a God like ours? You know, everyone loves those who love them back. It's not hard. It doesn't take transformation. It doesn't require death to self. Romans 5, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Not because we were lovable, because we were easy, not because we respected him and thought accurately of him, not because he had something to gain from us, because that's just the kind of God he is, loving. So therefore, as his sons, as his daughters, as his people, by his grace, we can actually love others, even our enemies. It's an amazing thing. How do you do that? You have to be made new. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Christian's a new creation. A miracle has happened. He's, he's not saying you can be morally perfect. The sermon started with we're those who mourn our sin. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, he's saying we can love the way God loves. We get to bear the family semblance. What an incredible privilege. All because he loved us. See, Jesus was the only truly selfless one to ever walk this earth. He did not consider himself when he came to rescue those who were in love with themselves. In fact, he so considered us that he gave up himself. He humbled himself. He denied himself. He took in himself our love for self, and he died for it. He bore the penalty our sin deserved that he might forgive and rescue and deliver us from ourselves. See, the cross was the most clear display of the selfless love of God, of a righteous man not seeking his own vindication for your sake and for my sake. It's incredible. Jesus loved us like that. And in doing so, freed us from every plan of darkness. Freed us to live and freed us to love. That's what we sang earlier. And not only does he rescue us, but he creates in us his kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What a privilege this is. What an honor it is to belong to the Lord. And what an effect this has on our world. This is extraordinary. Enjoy the freedom of self-denying love that was purchased for you at Calvary. You know, as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, on the one hand, is there anything more discouraging as you look through it and you think, man, my life compared to this is very discouraging. It just weighs us down in that way. We, think at these, we look at these examples and think, I'm just an absolute failure. The Ten Commandments were hard enough. It goes deeper than that. And yet, at the same time, when we understand what Jesus is doing and saying, is there anything more encouraging? Because by implication, what the invitation is, we are invited, we are enabled by the Spirit of God to actually live this way. See, do you hear what Jesus is inviting us to? It's not simply don't retaliate, it's not simply love your enemies. He's inviting us to freedom. Freedom from self. You know, think about it for a minute. So many problems in our lives are tied to prioritizing ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The ultimate cause of any misery or lack of joy is separation from God. And the one cause of separation from Him is self. Whenever we are unhappy, it means that in some way or other, we are looking at ourselves and thinking about ourselves instead of communing with God. Self is the main cause of our unhappiness because when we prioritize self, we remove God off his throne and pretend ourselves to be there. It leads to all kinds of problems. We're always thinking, so what do people think about us? How are we being perceived? We analyze every situation to determine well how that's going to make me feel. We can be paralyzed by fear of rejection or failure in our decisions. We can weigh out what kind of gain are we going to get in some relationship. We can strategically try to protect ourselves from harm from others in relationships. We can rehearse interactions we've had in our head over and over. Imagine a life free from that. Free from those things. It's life in the kingdom, free from self-concern, love for God, love for others. You know, maybe you don't feel very extraordinary in your Christian life today. You're not setting any records. May you hear the Lord's invitation in this text today to invite you to daily opportunities to show the world your Father is in heaven. Does it sound impossible to love those who hate you, to not retaliate, to not seek your own vindication? Apart from the Spirit, it is impossible. But the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same Spirit that is at work in you creating these things. So there's so much to be excited about. What should we do? We face the problem honestly. We think about, why does why, this bother me so much? We think, am I actually concerned about God's justice and righteousness or just, just focused on myself? It's painful. The denial of self is painful. But in God's grace, it's the pathway to life and freedom and joy. And it's what our Savior came to purchase for us. George Mueller once said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, to, died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. May we enjoy the same thing, May we enjoy this same thing and this freedom to which Christ is inviting us, that we, that the ones who Christ has died for, that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Let's pray that he does that in our hearts. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for your, the promise of your spirit to make us new. Thank you for freedom from self. Thank you that you sent your son who did not consider himself, but freely gave himself that he might rescue us. Oh Lord, we're so grateful for the work you have done and are doing in our hearts. Our prayer is that you would give us great faith That you will, by your spirit, accomplish this great thing in us. We trust you for that. We ask for that freedom. Pray you would enable us to love in the ways that you do. All for your glory, for the good of your church, and for the advance of the gospel among this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.